Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines, but it's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you're listening in. And this month, we welcome a very special guest. Um, She's my friend, and she's been my friend for probably the last year or so um, since we met. Actually, not even, about three years ago we met. Very excited to bring to you the Honorable Ruth Anna Buffalo, the very first Native American woman Democrat elected to North Dakota State Assembly. She's a member of the North Dakota House of Representatives, and she serves the 27th District there, and she's located in Fargo. She's also an enrolled citizen of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation. Ruth is joining us on Freedom Road today in order to talk with us about the story that the land tells about violence. And I really strongly believe that this is one that you're going to want to listen to and that you're going to want to take notes. So please get out your notes, your notepads, and also send us your questions. We want your questions. We want to hear what you're thinking. And you can tweet me at Lisa S. Harper or tweet to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends. We really love that. You know, and we love the the back and forth, you know, so just keep that coming. So for the last few months, we've been on pilgrimage, soaking in the story of the fruits and roots of immigrant exploitation in the U.S., Well, I did another pilgrimage this summer, and it was a pilgrimage through the story of Ruth's own family and her people. It really wasn't supposed to be a formal pilgrimage. I really literally was just going to hang out with my friend, but it ended up being such a deeply spiritual and informative time that I just wanted to share this with you. I just thought, my gosh, everybody needs to hear this. Everybody needs to understand this. And I've understand for a while that the land speaks It bears witness. It tells the truth. I've listened and I've heard the story that the land tells in North Dakota. But it's not just a North Dakotan story. It's an American story. It's a story of profound faith. And it's not just from the past. It's present. It's right now. And it's urgent. Ruthanna, when we were together, we rolled across North Dakota literally twice (laughs) in your car, going from Fargo all the way out to Standing Rock and then up to Mandaree, um, where your family is. And the picture of you with your fist raised is where most people, like that's how they place you, is that viral picture that went around the world, actually, of you raising your fist and basically just saying, oh my God, like I'm here um, on the day that you were sworn in to the legislature there in North Dakota. And so I want to ask you just to start off, what is it that led you to run for office? Knowing you, I know you were born for this. You were created for what you are doing. I don't know anybody who's more created for, for the work, the level of change that you are embarked on in North Dakota, but not only in North Dakota, but around the world. So just tell us a little bit about what, what it is that led you to run for office. Gosh, I would say a number of reasons. 
the inherent trait of being an older big sister and always wanting to be of service to others and to help fix things that are broken and to protect not only my family, but my community and the region and the country. So there's those inherent characteristics, I believe, that I've, I'm born with. Taking the extra step of courage to continue moving this work forward and this work in helping our communities heal and also just educating our communities on how they can get involved and how they can vote or, you know, how they can exercise their, their basic rights in, in voting. Mm, that's really, that's powerful. And I think you're totally right. It does take courage. And girlfriend, you did, you had some serious courage. <laughs> because wasn't it the, the situation, you know, the situation that you were up against was that you were up, up against an incumbent legislator who had been in that office for a while and actually had legislated roadblocks for, for voting, right? Like voter suppression so that Native people were not able to vote as much as they wanted to. Isn't that right? Like right. one of the ways that, one of the things that you were up against. Yes, exactly. To begin with, I was running against two incumbents, so two men from here in Fargo that were running for a re-election. So to do that in any race, it's always a challenge to run against the person who's running for a re-election, you know, the incumbent. So that was one challenge to begin with. Um, but I had already ran in a statewide race in 2016 for insurance commissioner. So I felt that gave me some good experience and I felt that I needed to continue this work and trying to find ways to move forward. And I was pretty active within our party and was elected and to be the party secretary for two years. And then um, this past year, I recruited four Native Americans to run for the four seats within the executive committee of the state party. And two of them were able to get elected into secretary and treasurer positions. So we have, you know, 50% representation of Native Americans on the executive committee within the state party, um, but there's still so much work to be done because currently I'm the only Native American woman serving in the state legislature in either, you know, in the House and the Senate. And we do have one Native American man serving in the state Senate from Turtle Mountain wow. to Chippewa. Wow. So now how did that moment in the picture happen? You shared that with me. I thought that was so cool. <laughs> yeah, so there was a lot of people there the day of the swearing in. I had relatives drive up from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I had, you know, people from all over. I had one elder man from back home, Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, drive up just to deliver an eagle fan to me. And then he turned right back around and drove back. Wow. Um, he had meetings and other obligations, but... He had shared with me that he knew that if my one of my late uncles, who is the, the firstborn of my grandparents' children, he said he knew if, if my uncle was still alive, he would be right there beside me, you know, on that day in the Capitol. And so it was really a beautiful day full of love and support. And so that I believed helped carry me through my first legislative session. Yeah. Um, I couldn't see them there physically with me. I knew that they were surrounding me with their, their love and support. And so the day of swearing in, I was leaving the floor, the house floor. And we had, I think we had just gotten our um, 
are packets. So if you see in that, notice in that picture, I'm holding a, a large yellow manila envelope. And oh, so yeah. we all were called up to the front to get kind of like our orientation packets. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. And that was after the official swearing in took place. And then we all were lined up to go up to the front to get our packets. And then on the way back, yeah, I think it was on the way back. Yeah. Friends, um, one of my friend's sister, younger baby sister, actually, she was standing upstairs on the balcony and she, I've worked alongside her in different community uh, organizing efforts. And so she, I heard somebody call my name. And so I looked up to the balcony and she said, Ruth, she said, go like this once. And she, uh, <laughs> she wanted me to do like she held her fist up. And so I did that real quick. And then she snapped a photo from her iPhone or her phone. And then she said, all right. Like she was super excited. About it. <laughs> and then at that very moment on the floor level, a photographer had snapped that photo. So that, that photo, in fact, like you mentioned, went viral. Um, it really did. I mean, yeah. I saw it. I saw it on Rachel Maddow. Like <laughs> that, that was amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. You know, so the thing that, that I was really blown away with when I was there was not just one part of the story, but kind of the story and, and the reality that the land really does tell the story. So what is the story that the land told you while you were growing up about you, about your people, about your family? What's the, what's the story that the land told you about who you are? I would say, you know, growing up in Mandaree, always being outside, always hiking north of my mom's house mm. um, in Mandaree, just any chance we got, we were always outside. If we weren't weeding the garden, we had, my mom used to have this huge garden. We would then be able to go walk around out in the hills north of my mom's house. Mm. Um, and so there's so many fun memories of hiking, I guess it would be referred to as hiking today, yeah. but just walking, you know, we didn't have hiking boots or, you know, yeah. anything fancy, just out there walking around and we'd spend days out there. We had forts. Um, <laughs> we just were always outside and even in the winter time, you know, same areas back behind north of my mom's house, sledding, you know, in the sum in the winter, in the snow, but, and we also used to go running behind my mom's house. I say behind, but it's actually north of my mom's house. And a lot of the stories, I mean, you could feel a lot of the, you could feel things from yeah. the earth. Um, yeah. And so to answer your question, I would say that what the land has taught me or told me throughout my lifetime, even as a young girl, is that, you know, our ancestors are, are very much still with us mm. uh, because I remember even just hearing the wind, you know, as a little girl and it's almost like you could hear songs or things in the wind and, and even wow. outside running, you know, getting exercise, but running and walking through these areas that were in fact, or are in fact sacred sites, you know, <laughs> referred to as what are sacred sites. Right. Um, right. It's very, very powerful. And so I think a lot of what it's, taught me or told me is that we're very resilient and that we're here and that we're we still have a very there's still more work to be done and we still have a very much of a fierce mm -hmm. spirit or a fierce being yeah but also very like humble at the same time yeah 
I, you know, that I, I, I testify. I agree. <laughs> no, I see. I, I saw it when I was with you, not only you, but it's very true of you, but it's, it is everybody. It's everybody there. It's amazing. And, and I also wanted to say that when I heard the story of Lake Sakakwea, Sakakwea and Elba Woods and that part of your family story in particular, would you share some of that with us? Like, Sure. Because that's also a story that the land tells there. Right. So with Lake, referred to today as like Lake Sakakawea, it really should be named, you know, Sakakawea Reservoir Mm. um, because it is a man-made lake. And so even just the name Lake Sakakawea is misleading in that it, it tells the broader public that, oh, they're honoring a woman, a Native American woman, by naming this lake after her, when in fact, this lake, so to speak, is not really a lake, a natural lake. It's a man-made lake. It should really, in fact, be called a reservoir, because it came to be after the Garrison Dam was built. And in the process of making the Garrison Dam, 94% of the agricultural land of the Hidatsa Mandan and Urukara people was flooded um, in the early 1950s. As a result, a lot of people relocated to wait. Just real quick, I'm sorry. Just real quick, don't 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 go past that too quick, (laughs) because this is really like think people need to understand it was flooded not by God and not by accident, but intentionally by policy. And yes. and the people lived there. Like ho- there was a whole thriving town there. You you talked about the quality of the soil that it was rich black soil. Like that there were farms. Like people were farmers. Is that right? Back um, right. at that time. Yep. Yes, because our historically or traditionally the Hidatsa Mandan and Urukara people were farmers. Mm-hmm. We weren't very nomadic, you know. Yeah. Large earth lo- earth lodges, or they look like big mounds, you know, in earth mounds, but in those, so those earth lodge villages are found up and down the Missouri River. And so Elbow Woods was an area located in what is referred to as the bottomlands, which was flooded. And Elbow Woods was a very centralized community with thriving, like you mentioned, we we were very self-sufficient farmers and ranchers had our own school and hospital. And after the flood, it caused everybody to relocate to higher ground, but it was very rough, barren grazeland. Ah. And and then it also split us into six different communities. Mm-hmm. And so, like you mentioned with policy, it, when I think of Elba Woods, and it, it is a horrific mm-hmm. life event that did, again, disenfranchised and already disenfranchised group once more it's terrible and and so when I hear the words you know poor health is a result of poor policy that just rings really loud clear to me because from that event our health outcomes our health was impacted you know just the family structures were impacted um so my grandparents they chose to stay you know while others moved away and in doing so, their family structure was met with some pretty grave challenges. They relocated to an area called Independence, or it was then called Independence. And then the school, uh, new school that was built in Mandry, then was 
located too far. Like the bus lines wouldn't go out that far to where my grandparents Hmm. now lived at that time. And so they were giving parents the option of sending their kids to a boarding school. So my mom was five years old when she went away to boarding school. Oh, and God. Wait, they- wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Let's, can we just sit on that for a second? We need to sit on this for a second. Because also, people, when you're listening in, I can imagine you probably thought of Elba Woods being flooded, you know, back in the 1800s sometime. No, 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 no. It was flooded in the 1950s. So we're talking, this is the 1950s. At the same time that the middle class is being exploding through the the GI bills, where the GI bills are giving free land, giving free free homes and housing to, generally speaking, white soldiers that are coming back from World War II, that's the point when Elba Woods was flooded. And it was flooded because through acts of God, through nature, white settlements were just constantly being flooded in natural storms and stuff down river. So they built this dam in order to protect the white folks and instead flooded out the community, the Mandan community in Elba Woods. And so, and now what Ruthanna is talking about, which we really sit on for a little minute, is the these health impacts that are still impacting the people today. Yes. Yep. Definitely. Yes. Thank you for adding that. <laughs> just want to make sure folks get it. Yeah. Yes. yes because Bismarck was, it was the whole, the, I guess that the intention was to give Bismarck flood control and Bismarck is our, where our state capital is located. Mm. Um, and interestingly enough, like maybe five years ago, I remember driving my mom, I was driving for her and we were driving across the bridge that goes over Lake Sakakawea. Mm. And my mom looked out over the, the water and she said why do you think this was just out of the blue she said why do you think they flooded this area what do you think the real reason is and just kind of caught me off guard it was just you know out of the blue my mom asked this question and I just said I don't know and and I just you know listened and she said well I think it was more for their for their recreation right you know and so it just really resonated with me because today, you know, that area is known as having the best walleye in the state. Well, the, the best walleye is actually purposely or intent, intentionally, what do you call it? They have those big hit fish hatchery yeah. things at the Garrison Dam. Wow. Location, you know, so. Yeah. Um, and there's always boats and uh, fishermen and things. And yeah, that's actually, oil. that's something else that, that struck me. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut it across you. <laughs> I mean, really, it's an incredible story. But that is something that really struck me in the story as you were sharing it. And I could see it when we were driving through the area that along the all the edges of the reservoir are now boathouses and docks and private property owned by white people. So that was, I mean, all the more amazing is that they moved again, they moved the Mandan people up you know, up and then took took the land around the reservoir, right? The shoreline, and so there's still some still very contentious happenings with regards to the shoreline and mm. um, very political, I guess you could say. So before the oil came, you know, basically it was the fishermen zooming through the the communities, mm. um, and then now it's the oil truck traffic, and so it's just um, always adjusting to things that are being put into 
the environment of residents who are living within the exterior boundaries of the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation. So yeah, it's an interesting anomaly, I guess you could say, when you look at, when you try to pick apart, I think it's an interesting case study, you know, to see if you really want to examine different factors as to what happened in the past and why and how and then where we are today. How did we get to this point of where we are today? And I mean, I don't want to always sound so gloom and doom. You know, there are some good things happening. You know, our youth are really bringing that um, Mm -hmm. fresh perspective forward and, and that courage and things, but there's still a lot of healing that needs to take place. And I don't believe that healing can fully take place until we as a people, as a country, you know, as a state of North Dakota, acknowledge all of this true history that has taken place. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, We find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. Rizana, a lot of people think the atrocities that happened to Native American people were basically in the past, right? So the thing I was most overwhelmed with by when I was with you this summer was how absolutely current and existential the struggle actually is right now. What is the story that the MHA land, the Fert Boltold Reservation, what does that land tell today? You know, I'm thinking about the flares that were all around us and the pipelines, the struggle for the Standing Rock Pipeline, which I understand is not the same reservation, but it's it's connected. It's connected in the history of the people and the connection between the Standing Rock Sioux and the Mandan burial grounds on the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. So what is the, what's the story that that land tells today? I would say the story of the land today, what it tells is there's a lot of what others may refer to as like economic development, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of, I guess you could say, destruction happening to the earth. Not only the earth, but, you know, there's potential hazards of water air and soil contamination Mm -hmm. with this oil economic development also referred to as like oil or energy development with the fossil fuel industry so there's that component to it some believe that the earth is fine and and she'll heal just fine 
And that, you know, there's such a large quantity of water within the lakes Kaguya, which is, you know, a part of the Missouri River. So there are people who firmly believe that there's no such thing as climate change or a danger of the earth. But, you know, I remember doing a science project, I think, in the fifth grade on the ozone layer, you know. And so <laughs> way back when, I remember studying, like, chlorofluoral carbons, you know, CFCs wow. and aerosol cans and air conditioners and styrofoam cups and plates you know mm-hmm. it's I guess always been an interest of just like the earth how do we protect the earth how do we keep the earth healthy mm-hmm. and whole and so it's hard to, I mean I don't consider myself an expert but I mean I, I am concerned for the earth and you know technically I am considered an outsider of of my homelands because I don't currently live there even though I grew up there mm-hmm. but my entire family still lives there you know I have infant nephews that live there and I'm concerned about their their air their quality of life yeah um, my mom everybody my sisters so it's it's a concern so there's a a change happening i believe with all of the oil development that is happening back home um some may look at it as you know a blessing but it's a very also another very contentious issue yeah you know i mean honestly you know we talked about it like right so we we had a lot of time in the car <laughs> That's, yeah, that's that's part of the that's honestly part of the power of pilgrimage and why well, I didn't even think we were doing a pilgrimage. Just started hanging out, but actually we had so much time in the car to talk that it ended up being this deep spiritual experience, right? But in the middle of some of those conversations, I'll never forget you kind of describing the flares, and I remember asking, "What's a flare?" And you explained that the flare is the fire that's burned in order to burn off the methane gas that's coming up from the earth from the fracking drills that are drilling water down into the earth in order to break it up in order to get the natural gas out right is that right that pretty much i pretty much pretty much got it yeah i mean it's associated with the fracking well sites yes um, and there are some very um, potent chemicals that are being released into the air. And so that's another concern, you know, with the the flaring um, being nonstop. And right. so when you visit Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, which is located kind of in the northern, northwestern mm-hmm. side of North Dakota, you'll notice almost like a thin haze around this area. And before people would think, well, it's just the fires from California or Canada. But even after those events have long passed, there's still a thin haze of what looks like smog from a large city from traffic. Yeah. And so we know that a lot of the oil semi-truck traffic has to travel on like gravel roads and scorial roads. And so that, that, air you know that particulate matter contributes to the haze but i know that a lot of these oil companies have since paved those roads to try to eliminate the amount of particulate matter that's in the air but there's still a pretty noticeable haze around the area so it's concerning and so from a public health lens you always want to find the root cause and you also you know want to prevent further tragedies from happening and so it's also you know trusting in the systems that are currently in place we do have a tribal health department we also have um, 
the Elba Woods Memorial Clinic, and I believe they have, you know, environmental techs on on board, and they also have a tribal environmental protection agency mm-hmm. department there, you know, so we have to trust that they're collecting baseline data and, you know, monitoring mm-hmm. this and informing the public, I think, is also key. Yeah. Um, you see in large cities, you know, the percentage of pollen for the day or smog alerts. And so it would be good to get to that point one day too, to keep the public informed. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's kind of ominous because I remember just driving through Mandaree alone, right? Like, um, and especially if you go a little bit north of there, like you literally, you know, stand on the hill right above the Hidatsa, um, Newtown, Hidatsa area, and you stand on the hill and you look in all directions, 180 degrees, and you can see the flares at night. It looks like just fires burning on the hills in every direction. It's unbelievable, actually, the the level. And then to imagine all of those toxins, possible toxins and particulates going into the air, it, it's, it's, it can be overwhelming. And I can imagine how overwhelming it might feel for you and others who have family and who are living in that area. And so, you know, one of the things I definitely want to ask you toward the end of our time together is how can people, how can we do better? Like, how can we help the world to do better? But before we get there, there's another another story that the land tells that's connected to that. And it was struck me on my last night there with your family that we were talking about the man camps, right? We were talking about the reality that these camps, the oil dr- drilling camps and also the flaring camps, bring with them men who work these rigs, men who work these camps. And the man camps, um, not only the man camps, but but they are certainly a factor, contribute to the vulnerability of Native women in the area. You know, just the reality that 506 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women have occurred across 71 cities from 2010 to 2018, right? Just that alone should give us pause. What was your first introduction to the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women? First introduction would have been I think the topic or the movement today referred to as missing and murdered Indigenous women, when I first became involved was when I was a graduate student here in in Fargo um, in 2014. I was assisting one of the program managers in the department where we were doing our our graduate assistantships, and she was helping collect one-sided earrings for a large national project. It grew into a national project of this large earring exhibit for a group called Sing Our, Sing Our, Our Rivers Red, mm. referring to the Red River, because around that time, further downstream, which is weird to say because it is north of us, mm. but the Red River is one of two rivers in the United States that flows north instead of south. Wow. And so further downstream in Winnipeg, Canada, uh, which is located north of here, they were combing, community members were combing one of the lakes up there that um, the Red River is a part of. Mm-hmm. So the Red River flows into this larger lake in the Winnipeg area. And so a young teenage First Nations 
girl was missing and community members were combing the bottom of a lake up there in Winnipeg looking for her. And I remember following that through social media and just feeling really helpless because it, I mean, for the community members to take matters into their own hands and then to take courage and try to find this help, find this missing teenage girl was, I was pretty struck by that. And so we helped do what we could within the local Fargo-Moorhead community by helping collect one-sided earrings because the project was to collect one-sided earrings. You know, everyone usually comes across a misses an earring from time to time or loses an earring and so oftentimes we'll hang on to those one-sided earrings that's so true (laughs) you know it may turn up or we might find it it might Mm -hmm. um and so these one-sided earrings for this earring project represent the missing and the murdered oh god and so wow they had a huge um event here in the fargo moorhead area that february of 2015 where all of the area mayors signed on to us a, a proclamation so there was west fargo fargo moorhead and i believe glendon they hmm. excuse me signed off on this proclamation recognizing february 14th as the local missing and murdered indigenous women awareness day And they, Mm -hmm. you know, talked about the statistics and how we need to raise awareness on this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say that was kind of my first full introduction. I had followed it previously. Yeah. And I, on through social media, um, Canada is a lot more organized. Their government recognizes the issue. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow. Has been more organized than the U.S. doesn't. U.S. government doesn't. Currently, now they have this within this past year, but years prior. Our government hasn't. Oh my God, I had no idea. Well, one of the things that really, um, that I I will never forget is walking with you in three separate walks, right? Like we did three separate water walks um, or one water walk and other walks by rivers for as part of the missing and murdered Indigenous women's movement and protest. And, And during one of those, and also kind of right after it, you told me the story of the missing pregnant woman, Savannah Graywind, who was found in Vargo's Red River a week after she went missing. And there were 134 Native women have been found dead in the Red River over the decades. And I'll never forget holding that staff that had 134 red red tags, kind of the Eagle Staff, uh, con- connected to it. And you were one of the leaders of Savannah's search. So my question was, how did you get involved in that search? And also, I think on a deeper level, what did spirit speak to you in that time? It just how I got involved was from following the news, local news, and learned that a young Indigenous mother was missing, and she was eight months long in her pregnancy. And the more we heard about this story, it just just sounded very horrific. You know, we couldn't imagine being in the, the, the shoes of her parents and her family. As a Native American, growing up on the reservation, I saw things at a young age that needed to be fixed, like our healthcare system and going back to the poor health as a result of poor policy. Well, if you look at the statistics, you know, currently our American Indian population has a very low life expectancy. There's mm. people that will say, oh, the life expectancy is increasing, but it's still very, very low compared to the, the national average. I believe it's at least... 
there's at least a 10-year difference. Let's see. Let me pull that up real quick. Health disparities. American Indians and Alaska Natives born today have a life expectancy that is 5.5 years less than the U.S. all races mm. population. Wow. Um, wow. So like 73 years to 78.5 years, respectively. Um, and this is from Indian Health Services. You can check out their website at ihs.gov forward slash newsroom forward slash fact sheets forward slash disparities. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay. but even within each tribe is different, you know. And so mm-hmm. even within the MHA nation, there has been talk of lowering the elder eligibility age because not everyone is living as long. So in some tribal communities like the MHA Nation, within, located within the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, life expectancy is usually around like, you know, 55, 60. Sometimes it's 53, 55. My God, really? Yes. And so, and then in today's, with what communities are facing today with meth, the high yes. use of meth, um, yeah. drugs, that really opioid crisis also is very present within our tribal communities. So, so wait, I'm sorry. I just got to go. Let's just sit on this for a second because it just hit me, it, you know, in our normal conversation, I just, I just read an article that said that the average life expectancy in the United States is lengthening, that most white Americans in particular, um, but I, you know, probably most, most Americans, most black Latino, I, I need to think and we'll do more research on that, but certainly most white Americans are living much longer than our, you know, their predecessors. And yet you're saying that among in Native America, that that life expectancies are being cut by like 10 years. Yes, it's kind of been an existing issue. Like many practitioners and medical doctors who wow. work in tribal communities or work to address this issue to find prevention, you know, stressing the importance of healthy uh, living, you know, addressing ACEs, you know, adverse childhood experiences, you know, mm-hmm. really promoting healing. And so there's a, a video called Unnatural Causes that showcases different communities and the struggles that each different community faces and, and shows the comparison of zip code, you know, the, the disparities, mm-hmm. even if you look at like Johnson County and gosh, I don't want to get the, I think it's Wyandotte sure. County in Kansas City, Kansas and Missouri, how they're, they're one of the richest counties that is a neighbor to one of the poorest counties. And if you take a look at the life expectancy rate there, it's completely, you know, on other opposite sides of the spectrum. So there's a lot of research and work that's out there. And I commend the people who are still on the front lines doing this work um, because it is still a very strong passion of mine in trying to prevent further lives from being lost. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I mean, and and also, honestly, also the um, the citations, because we can put those on the website in the show notes, including the stats that I gave for the 106 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women that comes from Urban Indian Health Institute. So we'll also put that link there as well. So what is the story that Rivers, the Rivers are telling right now about the particular struggle of Native women across the country? Well, I think 
you know, when we think of water and the connection to the earth, like we have a very strong, as Indigenous people, I think as all people, if we slow down, take the time to listen and just be, we will find that we do have a very strong connection to the earth, to the land, to the water. And I believe that our Indigenous ancestors knew this. They lived it, they breathed it. And I'm thankful that a lot of the ceremonies, practices have, you know, have survived the test of time and are still here for us to embrace. Um, Because, you know, I was born in 1977 and it wasn't until a year later, until the American Indian Religious Freedom Act was enacted, that we were then free to practice our religion. You know, it was painted in a very negative heathen way. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So there's that piece of, you know, understanding when we talk about the water and the connection to water and how our women, our life givers, babies inside of us are held in water, we're made of water, you know, there's a very strong spiritual connection to water and protecting water. And what we're seeing today with women being murdered and dumped into water is just a very hard thing to grasp, you know, here in the Red River like with the uh, Nibi walks, it's pronounced in the uh, Ojibwa language, Nibi meaning water. Sharon Day has started the Nibi walks ac- across the country. Yeah. And focuses on a large body of water every summer to walk that particular piece of body of water. And she has walked the Missouri River in the past. So this past summer, through a lot of planning during the winter months, they were able to walk the Red River this past summer, starting from the headwaters of the Red River, which is located probably about an hour south of Fargo in the um, Wapaton-Breckenridge area. And it's about five, I believe they did 580 miles from no. headwaters, <laughs> right, all the way up into Winnipeg to Canada, mm-hmm. crossing, crossing the medicine line. But so I believe when people do these walks, they're very spiritual. They're praying the whole time. And it's really praying for healing, praying for a number of things, praying for people, the mourners. You know, you can pray for anything that, that comes to your mind and your heart while you're on these walks. And there's also science behind it that they are bringing healing to our communities by doing by participating in these walks. And so super thankful that we both were able to participate on the Nibby Walk um, this past summer. Yeah, and it was striking, like you mentioned, to see all of those red pieces of cloth tied to the eagle staff that represented a missing individual, missing and murdered individual. And four of them, four of those ribbons or cloth pieces of cloth were left blank because there's four people that have not yet been identified that have wow. been pulled from the Red River. Um, wow. And so it's it's tragic. I mean, it's. Um, there's really no words to explain, you know, the devastation that that brings to a family, a community, a nation. You know, and when I was mentioning earlier, the low life expectancy rates and how at one point, you know, through policy, Native Americans, American Indians, Alaska Natives, were we weren't supposed to be here today. Like that was mm. through survival and resilience. We are the ones, you know, you'll hear people say we were the Indians, you know, that 
weren't able to be killed or, you know, we were the ones hmm. that escaped or that survived. Um, and it's not to diminish those that weren't able to survive, you know, it's just mm-hmm. we're thankful to be here and that we are truly what our ancestors prayed for. And it's not to sound in an arrogant manner, but it's just acknowledging the struggle yes. that our, our ancestors overcame and the power of prayer um, and the strong spiritual um, identity that a lot of our ancestors had. I mean, it, everything was spiritual. It was prayerful, peaceful, prayerful people, you know? And so yeah, yeah. And that wasn't always a narrative shared. It was quite the opposite. It was. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. So I've been on a lot of pilgrimages, five separate journeys just this summer. Hello, somebody. (laughs) I have never cried as much as my time moving through this story that is rising from Native American lands right now. And I don't think most Americans, most American Christians, you know, cultivate a kind of spirituality that can actually hold this that can hold this level of suffering. So I think that people, even while we're talking right now, might be tempted to turn on the news and watch that in the background or listen to this in the background, like do something to get away from this pure story, right? Or to water it down, or maybe even to minimize it in your head and think, well, somebody else has got that. Don't worry about it and move away. I was overwhelmed when I watched the dancers come into the arena at the powwow, you know, on the... Manda and Hidatsa, Arikara Nation in Newtown on the reserve there. And the Native people from across the country came into that arena and they came to dance. And especially those from, from that area, as they entered the arena, I saw two things. I saw prayers. People were dancing their prayers, as Richard Twist, our, our dear brother, used to say. And I saw the resilience and the strength of the people. And you said this actually during our time together, that everything is prayer. Everything, every step, every breath, there's no separation. And I think it's because there's no separation. It's because everything is prayer. Everything is connection. That actually creates, I think, a level, a depth of spirituality that has made it possible for those like you and your family to survive under the weight of this suffering and also to fight it and to stand up under it and to move it from your shoulders. 
So, I mean, in many ways, every step is a prayer, right? And through the North Dakota legislature, your steps are prayer. And you've already made a huge impact in in the legislature. You've already passed several pieces of legislation. I wondered, you know, can you share with us one or two pieces of legislation that you've introduced that you're most proud of? Gosh, Um, (laughs) I introduced eight pieces of legislation and seven passed. And I think one that I'm most proud of is that. Wait, can I just say, I just want to sit on that for a second. (laughs) This is my thing. It's my thing right now. I don't normally do this, but but you're so humble. I need people to understand that doesn't happen. Okay. First of all, like first term legislators, they don't introduce seven pieces of legislation in one term. That just doesn't happen. And they eight, I'm sorry, eight, and they don't get seven of those eight to pass. So, <laughs> so our friend Ruthanna is doing something right, y'all. And we need to give her a, a hand. <laughs> somebody somebody, give my friend a hand clap in their living room as they're listening to this right now or in their car. But don't crash as you're in their car. Go ahead and keep your hand on the steering wheel. But Ruthanna, just hands off to you. And okay, so, so, you're, so share with us one or two that you're especially proud of. I would say... One or two that I'm especially proud of is starting a state repository on missing people. Um, ah. Because after digging deeper, we found that the state of North Dakota does not collect data on missing people mm. at all. And so that was a mm. gap within the system that we found. Um, and they will also track or not, they will include tribal affiliation. And so that wow. was an interesting process to go through. The other one that I'm also very proud of because after seeing and hearing input from young Native American students, how happy they were that this bill passed into law was that so that they could wear eagle feathers or an eagle plume. Boys generally wear eagle feathers. You can either wear, just depends on the tribe and the community and the family difference, but um, these eagle feathers and eagle plumes high school students can wear them in their hair. Oh um, my goodness. During, that that had to be passed by law? Yeah. Uh, during their high school graduation. In, they couldn't in, do that before. It was illegal no, to do that before? Right. They were not allowed to. It was kind of by a case by case. If a city passed an ordinance allowing it. And so Grand Forks, which is an hour north of Fargo and uh-huh. Bismarck, three hours west of us from Fargo, they both passed, actually passed it through their school boards, I believe, city councils, I have to double check, but so they kind of worked at it more closely on a local level, but every year the Indian Affairs Commission office shared with us that come springtime, their phones are ringing off the hook from grandmas, grandpas, sharing the challenge that their their respective um, grandchild has to face in preparing for high school graduation and not having to be allowed to freely wear their eagle feather and eagle plume um, during their high school graduation. And so it was a very interesting process, you know, during the committee hearings, I guess, you know, being in the legislature, it's kind of basically it's an ivory tower. And a lot of the legislators were in denial that this was still happening and they were very adamant about which schools do not allow this, you know, and, oh, wow. and which is true. You need to have the facts there. But even after hearing the facts, there was still a level of denial that this is still taking place. And wow. right, so nobody wants to admit that in 2019, well, this is still 
happening, you know, and it's sad and it brings tears to your eyes knowing that you do have to introduce such a piece of legislation that would honor our the accomplishments of our young Native American students. You know, when I graduated high school, I received my first plume from an elder uh, within our clanship systems. And so it's an act of honoring and acknowledging the great accomplishment that these students did in graduating from high school. And a lot of the students, they might be the first one in their family to graduate from high school. And the flip side wow. is to lift up our Native youth. You know, I mentioned the health disparities, the low life expectancy rate. We have also very high suicide rates amongst our Native youth. And so we need to find every opportunity to lift and recognize our, our Native youth. Mm. So what can listeners do? What can listeners do about the fracking that's happening out of sight of them on Native lands? And what can we do to end the phenomenon we call missing and murdered Indigenous women? You know, are there policies that we can support or that we can even push for in our own state houses or in the federal government? Like what I'm thinking, one, one that comes to mind is VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act, and the ways that, that during the Obama administration, I was part of the push, right, that, that was pushing for, for the Obama administration and, well, this, really the legislature at the time to make sure that Native women were included in that in those protections because they often have not been. And then under, I know that under our current administration, they were removed from those protections, I believe, right? So what kind of things can we be supporting that would actually help to end this phenomenon and also the fracking today? Gosh, that's a very, those are like the- They're um, huge. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The people's dissertations, I think. That's true, Um, it's true. uh, So I would think- in my my opinion, in addressing these issues, a lot of things come to mind. You know, the general knowledge of the public, I don't believe, really fully understands tribal sovereignty and what that means. Mm, yeah. And I believe that needs to be front and center, as well as the voices of the grassroots efforts within each of the tribal communities. Uh-huh. Um, so also allowing space for these efforts to be led by Indigenous people. They always say like those closest to the pain should also be closest to the microphone. Yes. Um, Finding ways to uplift the voices from these communities, Uh but also working to make sure that tribal sovereignty is protected for future generations, because I do believe it is under attack and is constantly at risk of being diminished. So... Yeah, that's really awesome. And I know, actually, I know that the that tribal sovereignty is something that is literally, and it's one of the targets of, of the current administration. So we should all just have an ear up and look out for that and know that we need to protect it as much as, as humanly possible. Right. Um, and to just, you know, stand with your Indigenous um, relatives. And I always remember hearing this very amazing woman elder say this uh, one time she said, you know, and we need all hands on deck, you know, meaning allies. We need allies. We need strong allies who are willing to stand with us and to be able to amplify the Indigenous voices. And we understand in different different arenas the messenger matters, 
but also understanding that she had said, if we could have saved the earth by now, we would have done it. And so we need everybody. You know, we can't do this alone. We need allies. And really keeping the focus on, you know, how can we be a good relative? Because essentially, you know, they say we're all related or we, we, we're we all equal. You know, if we look at the medicine wheel, it, it has all four colors in there, black, white, yellow, and red. You know, like we... We see everyone as equals and we go to bat for everyone as equals, you know, and sometimes that's not very well receptive in different arenas, but at the, that is our indigenous values, our core values of being a good relative to others. Like if we see someone being attacked verbally, physically, oftentimes we step in without question. Yeah. So we need to start stepping in without question. Yeah, I think so. And stand with, not for. Yeah. And ask questions, you know, why is this? Why is why is this policy? Why are Native Americans overrepresented in the jails in every level of government? You know, why is that? And it's it's a tragic thing that our missing and murdered indigenous women are it's an epidemic. Um, Yeah. It literally, yeah. It's a symptom of a larger problem. And then how do we protect our communities? Why can't they find our missing and murdered Indigenous women? But yet, on the other hand, our men are over, our Native American men are overrepresented in in the mm. judicial system. So it's, wow. it's a genocide if you really dig deeper, um, you That's know, the connection, connection to the land, you know, the boarding schools, that was the mechanism to assimilate and to basically um, get rid of us, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by cutting us, cutting that connection from the land um, is one form of genocide. So it's ongoing. And if we don't understand the true history, it's going to continue, you know. So it's really trying to acknowledge the true history and dig deeper and ask questions as to why things are the way they are. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., and this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Say in the know by signing up for those updates, and we will not flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop in the first week of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. Thank you.